topic for this chapel convocation is the Middle East and Middle America. What are we protecting? And uh, before we begin, I think uh, let's open in a word of prayer. <coughs> our Heavenly Father, we pray that you bless our deliberations this morning. <coughs> Help us to ponder and think about these questions of our relation to the Middle East and the tragic events of September 11th. <coughs> and we pray that we be enabled by the Holy Spirit to ponder anew your grace towards us, your call towards us to act and minister that grace to a world <coughs> that's dying. And while the world might believe that it's in the land of the living going to the world of the dying, we know that as Christians we're in the world of the dying, going to the land of the living. May we uh, consider that and uh, act on that as we think on these things this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, welcome, as I say, I'm Professor Knoll from the Economics Department, and with uh, Professor McIntyre from the English Department, we're going to lead this uh, convocation. Um, <coughs> I'm an economist by uh, training, and uh, I was asked to sort of moderate a panel discussion on uh, this question. It evolved in a little different direction, but I'm mainly going to focus on the uh, economic context for the tragedies of September 11th. I also want to ask about <coughs> why, as Christians, we should be interested in the economics of the Middle East. And I'll argue that as Christians, as citizens of Christ's kingdom, it's crucial that we move past our own parochial concerns, our own parochial focus, in an attempt to better understand the economic and religious dimensions of what happened last month. <coughs> and in responding to terrorism, stemming from the Middle East, I'll spend a little bit of time, although it won't be my thrust, on the question of whether we're merely defending a materialistic American way of life. So that's my... Uh, word by way of introduction, and I'll uh, ask Professor McIntyre to give a little introduction as well. Okay. I'm in the English department, so I'm not an economist, but I am interested in these things. And I've taken a particular interest in two dimensions of the problem since September 11th. One is the rhetoric that's being used in public speeches by the president and others, the kind of language in which the events are being framed, and the way the story is being told. And another is um, in thinking about not only what, how should we respond as Americans, but how should we respond as Christians, I'm interested in raising some questions about how we live as Americans and Christians. And specifically, I wanted to focus on two phrases that have been used a great deal in the past week. One is that we're going to defend our way of life. And I want to explore with you what that means. What is our way of life? And the second is that we're being encouraged to return to normalcy. I do want to point out that historically normalcy is not a word. It should be normality, but I suppose normalcy is now normal. So the idea of returning to what is normal, and I want to explore with you what is normal and uh, how do Christians in particular maintain a critical questioning posture towards both the language and the realities of American life. Dr. Knowles going first. Okay. Well, <coughs> in the Gospel of Matthew, our Lord instructs us to make disciples in all nations. 
throughout the New Testament, there are examples of our Lord, his apostles, and fellow believers ministering to other cultures in a wise way. In John 4, Jesus the Jew models for us a careful understanding of Samaritan life and his witness to the woman at the well. And of course, the book of Acts is replete with examples of Paul the Jew's ministry to the Greeks, full of a nuanced understanding of Greek culture. This morning, I'll suggest that it's especially important for us to understand the economic dimensions of world events in order to effectively pray and minister to other cultures. So I'm going to ask, are there economic reasons behind the tragic events of September 11th? For example, were we attacked because America exploits the people and resources of the Middle East through our trade and business relationships? And are we merely defending our economic interests in our response to September 11th? Are we merely protecting our oil, as it said, when we go after Al-Qaeda and the Taliban? Some social thinkers have suggested this. We got what we had coming, yet now we unrepentantly want to defend our lifestyle, which is grounded in unashamedly tapping the resources of poor Arab nations. But I think the recent events are not explained so simply. The Middle East is a vast region containing some 250 million people. Now, it's true that it's strategic to the global economy because of its energy resources, and we do import over half the oil we consume from the Middle East. But if we step back and look at broader trends, we get a slightly different picture. Over the past 20 years, our total output in the U.S., those of you E&B majors know our GDP, uh, has increased but our energy consumption has gone up only 26%. Over the same period of the last 20 years, we consume 12% more petroleum, but at the same time, gasoline prices have declined uh, in real terms, that is, after inflation, over 40%. <coughs> but still, it's fair to ask, should the Middle East uh, be less strategic for the U.S.? And I'd suggest, in a sense, we are too dependent on Middle Eastern oil, uh, despite the fact that we have many more energy consaving, uh, cons uh, consumption saving devices, um, developing our alternative energy sources more fully does make some sense. Now, moving beyond how much we consume in oil, this question, um, I'd suggest more broadly that it's not right to, to uh, contend that our trade with the Middle East has created um, their despair, their poverty. In fact, around the world, trade has tended to create vast growth opportunities for many developing nations. Some recent studies have shown that developing nations with the most open economies, those that are most open to trade, grow the fastest. And the incomes of the poor often, but not always, rise with freer trade. The most stubbornly poor nations in our world today are poor, so poor in some measure because they're much less open to trade. Now, most of the Middle Eastern nations, in fact, are open to trade. Yet the typical resident of these countries is not truly a full participant in the development of the global economy. Many of them are mired in stagnant economies. They're not benefiting from higher standards of living associated with growth rates around the world, the, the kind that have been true over recent decades. 
by contrast, if we think of, say, Northeast Asia, countries such as South Korea have developed industrial economies with rising living standards for their people. But the Middle East is stagnated, even with all of its oil riches. It's a region dominated by lesser developed countries. For example, uh, consider Iran. Iran has 62 million people, yet its annual income is only a fourth of South Korea, which has 47 million people. The story is similar for Egypt, for Saudi Arabia, Afghanistan, Syria, Jordan, and others. Some of these countries have a lot of natural resources, others don't. But virtually all have low living standards. For example, per person incomes in Afghanistan and Egypt are all below $1,800 per year. Even in Saudi Arabia, which is a relatively more uh, wealthy country, but not many of the wealthiest countries like Africa. Um, um, even in Saudi Arabia, which has a 7,000 per year income, and Kuwait, uh, per person income around $17,000, if you look at per person income, that's very misleading. Because in fact, you have a very small portion of the population getting a disproportionately large share of the income in those countries. Resource incomes then are very unevenly distributed. <coughs> So this suggests another dimension to the current crisis, and that has to do with the um, role of um, a relatively small group who receive a lion's share of the income, and in fact, a, the role of autocratic governments in the Middle East, where rule by the elite is um, often uh, key. <coughs> a number of nations in the Middle East are run an autocratic elite run, by the way, often as virtual police states. In Syria, uh, some 25,000 citizens can be rounded up and killed by the regime with no consequences. Those receiving the income, uh, the relatively small portion of the population can fritter their away their income in $300 million palaces and not uh, spend their incomes in ways that uh, benefit the full population. Now, in this setting, governments of one tribal or particular Islamic group inevitably are going to distribute favors to an inner circle. This is going to foment uh, resentment and opposition among the groups left out, in fact, has done so. And that's true, by the way, for both moderate and more radical Islamic governments. Osama bin Laden, uh, as many of you, of course, uh, know, is from a very wealthy Saudi family. And ironically, part of the driving force behind his radicalization is the way in which Saudi rulers have used the state to concentrate wealth. On top of that, bin Laden believes they greatly compromised the fundamentals of Islamic faith by giving in to the forces of modernization. <coughs> but if you also consider countries where Islamic fundamentalists have seized power, such as in Iran with the Shiite Muslims, in Afghanistan, the Sunni Muslims, particularly the Taliban. Here, monopoly control is being exercised by the state over industries. In Afghanistan, Iran, and other countries, a ruling elite uses the government to plan and direct production. Islamic states have nationalized major industries, confiscated real estate for government uses, 
banking, electrical power, major mines, air transport, just some of the industries that are under state control in the Middle East. Now, the problem with this is that the economic evidence from the past century speaks fairly clearly about this kind of approach to an economy. It's not going to produce rising living standards, nor is it going to attract the investment that this region needs. This kind of approach of planning and directing of state nationalization and control of industries is going to continue to mire a growing number of young people in poverty. The evidence is clear if you look at the 20th century experiments with planning, um, particularly in the last half of the 20th century um, around various parts of the world. This problem of a state-directed economy, by the way, is made more acute by surging population in most of these countries. More than half of the population of a typical Middle Eastern country is younger than 20. There are simply a growing number of relatively poor young people, and on an absolute basis as well, poor. So <coughs> in conclusion, um, I would suggest that while it's true, we are relatively wealthy, and many in the Middle East are poor, and furthermore, that they resent our intrusion into their world. Think about it, there are billions of poor and billions of weak people around the world. They don't turn planes into bombs. What's different about this situation? Well, there are unemployed, desperately poor people who are taught to blame America for eroding their Islamic heritage through commercialization and then combined with a distortion of Islamic teaching, which offers the lure of heaven for suicidal acts, we have a potent mix for terrorism. And of course, behind that is uh, some funding from bin Laden and perhaps even other Saudis. Now, what about the American relation to these Middle Eastern problems? As I say, I just want to briefly say something about this. There's no question we've had too cozy a relationship with some of the Saudi elite. <coughs> and as a Christian, it's very disturbing to me that our government has fostered too close a relationship with states that exploit their resources inequitably. I, for example, uh, would applaud uh, New York Mayor Rudy Giuliani for turning down uh, recently a Saudi prince's check for $15 million that the Saudi prince was going to give, it, give to contribute to the disaster relief fund. But uh, on a moral basis, Giuliani believed um, couldn't accept that check, and perhaps other of our government officials could act in a like manner. But does this mean in combating terrorism, we're merely protecting our own American middle class way of life? <coughs> I don't think so. I think uh, if you think about the hundreds of thousands of peace-loving Muslims who have immigrated to America uh, to escape poverty, to escape <coughs> the problems they face there, they're voting with their feet for greater freedom, including political and economic freedom. Uh, that's not the only thing uh, I would argue we're protecting in uh, combating terrorism, um, and that's subject for another of our convocations on just war, I suppose, and pacifism. <coughs> but certainly in combating terrorism, we're protecting these peace-loving Muslims who've immigrated to America just as much as we are all other citizens. So as Christians, I think we're obligated to better understand the economic dimensions of this tragic event and not sit passively on the sideline. 
And by the way, I think this applies not just to the events of September 11th, but many other places elsewhere around the world. Christians are being sold into slavery in uh, largely Sunni-led Islamic Sudan. They're jailed and persecuted in Afghanistan, China, and other places around the world. And I encourage us to ponder and think more carefully about these matters as well. Thank you. Let me just say that uh, they set us up in pairs, and the intention was not to set up debates, but to provide um, faculty who were reflecting with you on some of these events from divergent or diverse points of view. So I'll probably differ with Professor Noll on some particulars. But I want to say at the outset that I agree with him and with many of my colleagues that uh, it's particularly important for Christians to be reflective about political events. And I know that there is a tendency in some evangelical circles to resist political activism because uh, it's more important to work for the kingdom than to uh, work for things of this world and so on. That's a line of argument that I've heard. And that's a line of argument that I grew up with. And I want to say I have arrived myself at the place of feeling that those things are not entirely separable and that to work for the kingdom is to try to live out some uh, way of peace and justice and clarity and thoughtfulness in this world as followers of Jesus Christ. So what I want to do with you in the next few minutes is to think about, think as followers of Christ about what's happening, what has happened, and about these two admonitions that have come since the tragedy to defend our way of life and to reclaim what is normal. I also want to include in my reflections just at the outset here some of the terms that Professor Noel brought up because they're terms that are routinely used by all of us and I think they deserve examination too. One is the idea of a higher standard of living. That's a term that we use a lot and I think that it's easy to assume that that's necessarily desirable and that we necessarily all know what we mean by that. Another is the notion of economic growth. Economic growth as all you business and econ people, I'm sure, know, can be measured in various ways. The most common measurement of economic growth and health, health is the gross domestic product, but that really only measures how much money is changing hands. So it doesn't measure things like impact on the environment, for instance, or what are some of the other human costs of uh, the economy, which tends in America, as in the Middle East, to be very, very polarized, with the rich having tax privileges and getting richer and poor people getting poorer, and there are lots of statistics that support that. Um, annual income is another measurement. And so my point here is not simply to argue with Professor Knoll about these terms, but to say that all of that kind of language, all of the models, all of the means of measurement that we use in public discourse need to be looked at critically. So back to the original two questions, what is our way of life, quote unquote, and what's normal and should we think as Christians about these aims before even pursuing them? We're involved in systems that I think need critical examination. One of the things that has really been convicting for me in the last several years of teaching at Westmont is to think about the degree to which Americans who are very individualistically oriented, American Christians, think about individual sin, uh, about our own sexual morality, about our personal morality around money and uh, behavior toward other people and so on. But I think it's harder for a lot of people to 
arrive at some understanding of corporate sin, or what I think of as corporate sin. And that, by that I mean the ways in which we buy into systems that are unjust, into things like institutionalized racism, or into economic systems that in fact do exploit the poor. And that's not to say that our economic system, by and large, only does that. Any of these things is complicated. And I don't think, I think it's important not to caricature either way. But to think about corporate sin is to recognize that we're all participants in a large community on a scale, actually, that's historically unprecedented. And we are participating in things over which individually few of us have very much control. Nevertheless, you do, you are a participant in the economy and in the political systems when you buy anything, when you drive your car. Um, so I think an apolitical stance is not only irresponsible, I don't even think it's possible. Uh, we're involved in the economics and politics every time we decide which TV network channel to watch or not, or which radio station to listen to or what to read. So my suggestion is that we, as Jesus put it, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. The wise as serpents part seems to me to be an admonishment to healthy skepticism, to really being willing to raise questions about even those things in this world that we've been taught to believe are good, and not too readily to al align our Americanism, our patriotism, our uh, capitalism, or any of those kinds of uh, systems we live in with our Christianity, but to understand that that Christ works through culture and Christ also works against culture and that we're always called as Christians to hold that tension between faith and culture. Let me go through some facts, bearing in mind, again, that every fact has divergent possible interpretations and all statistics can be questioned, but I've garnered these facts as responsibly as I can from resources that I trust. And if any of you want to ask later about these resources, I'm happy to email you websites and so on. But think about our normal way of life. Our normal way of life is, is one in which we who are 4% of the world's population in the United States consume, now this, this figure differs but it doesn't differ widely, consume roughly about 40% of the world's resources. And one example of that is our consumption of oil. Americans guzzle oil. They account, we account for 5% of the world's population but we consume a quarter of its daily oil output. And we haven't been very proactive thus far in developing alternative energy sources and alternative transportation modes that don't use this kind of oil. So we're so deeply tied into our oil interests that, of course, that provides a motivation for going into other parts of the world, including into Afghanistan, where we are clearly hoping to set a pipeline through to um, Middle Asia, where there are resources, untapped resources of oil that we want. So, I mean, I think to be naive, to naively assume that this is about freedom only or about terrorism only is not to look at the fact that there always are economic interests involved and to think about how we are involved in perpetuating those economic interests. In the last 50 years, Americans have consumed the equivalent amount of natural resources to every human being who lived before the last 50 years which is to say that whatever statistics we might give about the rise and fall of consumption rates in the last 10 years, if you look at the broad historical picture, we're consuming the world's resources pretty rapidly, and some of them are non-renewable. And that's part of our way of life. The average American consumes as much energy as three Japanese people. A recent study also has shown that for each hour per week in front of the television, average 
per capita consumption increases about $208 a year, which is to say that our rates of consumption are increasing in response to corporate advertising, which is also part of our way of life. I've, I know that some of you here are reading a book that I've um, talked about some called Culture Jam, in which there's a really hard-nosed examination of corporate culture, corporate advertising, and the ways in which we've all been seduced and co-opted by uh, corporate interests, large corporate interests, and uh, more and more money being controlled by fewer and fewer people, and really culture being controlled by corporations. That isn't to say that all corporations are bad. It isn't to say that profit is bad, but it is to say that we need to look at the scale on which these things are happening and ask ourselves in what ways we are participating. And uh, well, the per capita GDP has it gross domestic product has increased significantly in recent generations. The, cap, the gap between rich and poor Americans has widened. As Dr. Noll pointed out, this is also true in Saudi Arabia. But I think that fact bears examination. When the rich get richer and the poor get poorer, what exactly are we buying into? Um, roughly 1% of Americans control about 38% of America's wealth, and the bottom 80% control about 17% of Americans' wealth. So just in terms of, you know, whatever you think of the term social justice, just in terms of what's fair, it doesn't look too fair, so it bears examination. Um, according to the Direct Marketing Association, United States media advertising expenditures reached $285.2 billion in 1998. And that might be compared with the aggregate gross domestic product of sub-Saharan Africa, the entire continent of Africa other, uh, below the Saharan Desert which was $274 billion, which is just to say that the amount of money we're pouring into advertising, which is a form of seduction and prodding us to consume more and more and more, and to become increasingly materialistic, is pretty staggering. To turn to another aspect of our way of life, or the impact our way of life has on other people and on the earth, and I know that some of you dispute this, but I want to say that if you dispute these facts, I, I think that even if that's the facts are possibly true, they bear careful examination. Scientists, many scientists, have determined that the industrialized world's consumption of resources, especially fossil fuels used in automobiles and power plants, is a major cause of global climate change. I just recently read a piece about the actual melting of the ice flows in uh, the Arctic Circle and what that's doing to the economies of people in the northern parts of Canada and so on, and what's it, what it's doing to their health. Um, industrialized, sorry, industrialized countries' consumption of CFCs and other ozone-depleting chemicals has been the primary cause of thinning the ozone layer and a lot of resulting health problems. Some people will tell you that all the statistics aren't in on this. That's true. We don't have, haven't had time for longitudinal studies. But there's a lot of evidence out there, and it seems to me responsible to examine it, thinking that, again, if it's even possibly true, then it's very consequential. And it comes back to the question of examining how we live and whether we should be living that way. Most daunting of all, the American dream or our high standard of living, our lifestyle, um, has also been exported to other countries which now want the kind of life that we have. And I think the arguments are pretty compelling that that's not sustainable as a global way of life. That, in fact, if the whole world followed suit, even if they could industrialize and westernize to the, way to, uh, the point of imitating the way we live, 
Um, the greenhouse gases would increase, the ozone-depleting chemicals would increase, the uh, supply of non-renewable resources would decrease, and we'd be in big trouble. So the environmental issues are not separable, I think, from the moral issues of our day-to-day -day life. Industrialized corporate farming methods that are being used in the United States have drastically reduced biodiversity, and those of you who are bio majors understand that possibly better than most of us. But it's in effect, as one person put it, monoculture, meaning only growing one huge crop for profit rather than the more diverse methods of smaller farming, is like putting a plastic bag over the world and preventing it from breathing. Um, that's a fairly extreme image, but the soil depletion, one thoughtful farmer has said is, it, some of you may have heard him, Michael Abelman, who is uh, one of the pioneers in community-supported agriculture, came to Westmont to speak last year, and he said, uh, how many of you think you know what the number one world crisis is? And people had various nominations for what the number one world crisis was. And he said, well, it doesn't get much press, but I think the number one world crisis right now is soil depletion. And it doesn't get much press. But soil depletion is something, again, that we have to look at because we are the consumers. And um, in implicitly, we consent to this thing, these things. We can't single-handedly, any of us, change them, but we can collectively change them. And I think Christians have to think more communally than we gen generally tend to in the United States. Um, just a couple more uh, facts here, and then I'll stop and we'll have some time for questions. In 1990, Americans sifted through 3.8 million tons of advertising mail, which amounted to 2% of U.S. Municipal, municipal solid waste. With the advent of email in the 1990s, you would think maybe that the uh, consumption of paper ad mail would, would decrease, but in fact, it increased. And in 1998, we uh, buried 5.2 million tons of bulk mail. So that's just one piece of what's filling our landfills. But again, these are resources that we're, for all of the upgraded recycling programs, we're not successfully renewing. Um, finally, on the matter of peace, and to bring up another uh, phrase that has been used in public discourse in recent weeks, many people claim, along with President Bush, that, quote unquote, we are a peaceful nation. But here's a list of countries that the America has been at war with and bombed since the Second World War, China, Korea, Guatemala, Indonesia, Cuba, the Belgian Congo, Peru, Laos, Vietnam, Cambodia, Grenada, Libya, El Salvador, Nicaragua, Panama, Iraq, Bosnia, the Sudan, and Yugoslavia, and now Afghanistan. Now, the reasons for those bombings and the reasons for those military actions are things about which reasonable people disagree. Um, and there are things about which reasonable Christians disagree. And so by giving you that list, it's not simply to say this was all wrong, but it's certainly not to say it's all right. And it is to raise some question about the suggestion that we are a peaceful and peace-loving nation. I believe that violence breeds violence. And I believe that when we support the violence our country is involved in, that, we have to, that the burden of proof lies on those who support violence because we are called to be peacemakers. And we are called to seek peace and follow after it. And in speaking about things of this world, Jesus spoke, spoke more about the poor than he did about any other single subject in this world. So I feel as though it's a time for us to re-examine our way of life, to look carefully at some of the political and economic realities we live with, to consider 
the degree to which we are participants, each one of us, and collectively. And um, not to be passive. Uh, I don't think pacifism is the same as passivity, but I do think that passivity is a sin of omission. And I hope that we will be able to be reflective about these things prayerfully and to even have our differences prayerfully and thoughtfully and to practice peace at an individual level so that we can maybe begin to practice peace corporately. Thanks. Well, um, thanks, Marilyn, for those comments. And um, <coughs> you notice we just want to take on a very narrow topic here today, and and uh, you know not talk about a wide range of things. Now, I think a lot of great questions have been raised here, and um, I do have some thoughts of my own to further discussion. But uh, I think it'd be helpful to uh, see if we have some questions for either of us and uh, continue the discussion up here. So, do you guys have any? comments or questions on what's been said this morning? Yeah. an opinion about that. I think Westmont is a culture where there are a lot of really nice, good, kind people who are nice to each other, and this is not just students, it's also the faculty. And at a recent faculty gathering, I ended up saying, you know what, this needs to be a safe place for us to have actual differences. Uh, for some reason, I think that uh, it's hard to do that at Westmont. That's been my experience in being here for six years. And it's not just you guys, but I really think it would be helpful to practice differing civilly with each other and not to be threatened by difference. Anyway, that's my notion about what's going on is that um, there's a certain hesitancy to be vigorously divided in opinion because, because we want to be unified and we want to be unified as believers and as Christians. But, and I think the sources of our unity are much deep, deeper than the sources of our difference but it does seem to me to be uh, a place where difference has become hard for whatever historical reasons. Well, I'd, I'd second that, and I, I suppose just to add that um, perhaps um, in, in the world around us we see where differences among peoples have led to um, extremes and, and uh, been carried off in ways that haven't been so civil, and we're afraid that differing might lead us to that, and as, and as you suggest, I think modeling those um, disagreeing civilly is, is really important for us to do, and um, so I don't know. That's I pretty much endorse what you're suggesting. But we did have one question, I think. Yes, to start with here. Yeah.
Well, I think both of us probably have a response here. Um, I think one of the things we have to do, certainly as Marilyn's suggesting, is ask some questions about what we consume and beyond the, the mere styrofoam cup, but uh, think about um, our own budget. We're called as stewards, it seems to me, um, uh, to use an economic term, to be efficient in the way we use our resources, to examine them carefully, or as our Lord suggested, count the cost in another context. Um, I think as well, you know, you think about um, uh, Lord's calling to you after Westmont. Uh, how are you light and salt in the world, in the company, the nonprofit corporation, uh, graduate school, wherever you're headed to? Uh, and how are you a voice there in um, encouraging that uh, entity, proprietorship, partnership, a corporation, a nonprofit, uh, to look beyond the bottom line? in the ways in which it expends its resources to get involved in the community and encourage environmentally friendly, friendly um, modes of production and products. It seems to me that some of those the ways in which you think about your calling and, you know, and looking longitudinally down the road are important. That's, that covers a lot of what I would say too, except just to say that historically boycotts work. You know, and we, none of us can do much about this individually, and we're all sitting here wearing clothing that we bought from big corporations and so on, but I do think that, um, that as one person put it, and I thought it was a kindly way to put the admonishment, if you pull out of the system a little where you can, if you take the trouble to find out what particular corporations are doing in the third world or what particular corporations are doing to uh, be careful for the environment, some are more responsible than others. So I think practices of socially responsible consuming and also awareness of oneself as part of a target market, which is a pretty insidious term that bears some examination too, uh, would lead us not so automatically to just succumb to the seductions of advertising or some notion of high standard of living that, that suggests more and more consumption is a good thing. But I, And also, you know, just to get more practical about it, if you go online, there are lots of petitions out there and there are lots of groups, uh, many of them faith-based groups, who are trying to be, to actively resist the pressures to consume and the destruction of the environment. And so there's a whole world of conversation about this out there and a great deal of pressure being put on not only the people in Congress and government, because government alone isn't responsible for all of this. It's the decisions made in corporate boardrooms that are affecting us in some ways that the government can't even control. Yeah, there's a question back there. Did you all hear the question? Okay, the question to was, um, I don't know your name. Tim? said that he agrees that violence breeds violence, but he wonders what we think might be the implications if America hypothetically took a pacifist stance toward Afghanistan. Okay, I do want to say that um, when people talk about pacifism, they often use the term improperly, and there are various forms of pacifism. Some forms of pacifism are withdrawal from political process. But the forms of pacifism that I know of and have some respect for are 
very proactive in the world. Uh, the American Friends Service Committee is one example among many of faith-based groups that have gone about working rigorously as peacemakers in the world and many missionary groups that some of you know about. So I think waging peace is a very active business and there are ways that we could be waging peace. The food drops that we're sending to Afghanistan right now are pretty token if you look at the, the quantities involved. But I think, for instance, we could work more closely with the coalition of nations that thus far are supporting us or work more closely with organizations like the United Nations to put pressure on the terrorists and to bring the people that we find and identify to justice in an international tribunal. These things have worked before. So I'm not convinced that bombing is actually e either the most nuanced strategy or the most effective. Well, uh, I'm not convinced that that's the most nuanced or most effective strategy, um, nor am I convinced that um, as a nation, turning our other cheek um, would be the uh, most nuanced or effective strategy either. Just sort of s speaking from a kind of geopolitical, practical realism, um, the uh, Al-Qaeda and Taliban have, seems to me, have indicated that uh, a lack of response they view as a sign of weakness from us, and it seems that that's uh, occurred in other instances as well and would only encourage, I think, some further uh, instances of attack. I think we have to be more sophisticated, though, in the way we go about um, rooting out terrorism. Uh, it's clearly very difficult. Um, the Soviets um, were involved in the over 10 years in uh, battling uh, the Afghanis, and uh, they have an extensive cave network. Um, they can hide out literally drive a truck full of supplies into the cave and uh, live there for months, if not years, on end. And so how do you go about, if you will, this is really a topic for another forum, isn't it, but practicing a war justly and uh, aiming at them and not at hospitals, not at civilians and so on. Uh, it's a very difficult, uh, practical kind of um, issue. So, um, uh, you know, I think uh, working with other nations, and, and I agree, certainly we want to, we want to wage peace, but um, uh, how do we um, encourage, um, in the long run, a more equitable distribution of resources in the Middle East? It seems to me and that that would be a, a long-term kind of question in terms of waging peace. It would be important, too. Yes. Yes. Did anybody hear that question? Uh, what about the check that uh, I mentioned that uh, was given by a Saudi prince for $15 million to the uh, New York Disaster Relief Fund, which uh, New York Mayor Giuliani turned down? And, and um, you know, I can't look into the uh, ultimate intents of his heart and so on, but uh, my sense is from his statements is it was on a moral basis that um, he turned, spurned that. Uh, uh, he's concerned, of course, about Saudi Arabia. Um, uh, not booting out um, terrorist groups 
and implicitly funding them and um, the way in which the Saudis, by the way, um, pulled out all the bin Laden family, financed them, uh, their uh, exit from the U.S. in the wake of the events. These kind of actions, I think, are part of what's, what's going on. The, I, w I would support it. Yeah, I would. I would. And, and um, you know, you look at the internally generated support in America for disaster relief, and it's been overwhelming. It's, uh, Mayor Giuliani in New York, Governor George Pataki has spoken of, and uh, so that's how it's going to follow up. <laughs> it was a Saudi prince, yeah, yeah. Right. Well, and that's a very good question, and, and frankly, I don't know all the specificity of his background, but um, and uh, perhaps Giuliani through um, CIA or FBI, the sources knew some of those connections. Uh, I'm not sure that's all been uh, expounded or explicated. But, uh, was there another question back there? question was, I'm repeating it partly for the sake of taping too, the question was that uh, if we used the UN as a means of arriving at strategies for handling the problem of terrorism, wouldn't that be a problem because the UN can't take direct action and they would be likely to impose uh, oppressive sanctions? Was that your point? Economic sanctions? Um, I don't know that they're more likely to do that than the United States is, since we've been imposing some extremely uh, oppressive economic sanctions in Iraq for quite It is, we are living in a globalized economy and a world in which the nation state as an entity has a really different status and a different meaning than it once did. And cooperation among nations is increasingly important for all of our uh, earthly safety. So it seems to me that the UN is the place where um, some kind of mediation can take place and some kind of agreement can be arrived at among nations who are affected rather than the strategy that we tend to be taking now, which is if you don't agree with us, you're our enemies. You know, the kind of aggressive resistance we've had to things like signing the Kyoto Accords. We have differed with other, with, you know, much of the other, the rest of the Western world on pretty crucial issues. And I think it's time for the U.S. to think more cooperatively. So the U.N. is one, one place to go to try to negotiate some of those differences. I think we're about out of time. Well, I, I, just a final comments. I, I, I 
most of the other nations of the world haven't gone on with the Kyoto standards either, besides, so, you know. Yeah, well, not just until very recently, but um, I certainly agree with the idea of uh, thinking about these terms more carefully, um, living standards and economic growth. And I'd include actually the no notion of fairness, too. I think we bandy that about too easily as Christians in terms of what's just and what's fair, and we need to unpack that a little more carefully in thinking about uh, income inequities as well. So I'd encourage us to think of, uh, as we hear the news media and uh, pronounce on these events, to uh, look carefully, as Professor McIntyre, at all these kinds of uh, concepts that are used to in a too facile, too easy way. Okay, it's just about time to go. So let's uh, lay down our differences for a moment and just gather in prayer about these things. Gracious God, we know that you are completely just and that you are completely merciful and that you came because you loved the world that you made and the people in it. And we pray now that we might leave here reflecting on the various complications of the world that we live in and participate in and really try to deepen our sense of what it means to seek justice and to love truth, to love our neighbors, to be peacemakers, um, to think about how to practice those things in our individual lives and how to really be the body of Christ and understand our connectedness in that body. And now I ask that you would send us out to the tasks of this day in peace and support us in your grace and your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>